I think the CIA has long perfected techniques of mind control, uh, and that's what the MK Ultra was. I mean, part of it was using drugs to try and manipulate people's mind and to better understand these drugs. But I think, yeah, it was ultimately uh, about mind control and psychological warfare. Uh, the CIA had long specialized in that. And, I mean, that's why they funded so much. A lot of the CIA activity, like, since the Cold War, was funding academic journals and media, you know, planting journalists uh, to advance certain narratives and, and, and to condition people to think in certain ways and to support these policies that we've been describing that are horrific. Welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, a podcast discussing personal and environmental health. Conversations searching for truths outside of the mainstream narrative. How much can we grow if we expand our thoughts beyond what's approved by the media and social media algorithms? Come with me and broaden our knowledge. Here's some alternate views and let's make up our own minds. Fair Food Forager. <laughs> Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair Food Forager. To another episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show, the podcast brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app, the world's only ethical social media and sustainable food directory. So you can use this food directory when you're on the road to find ethical and sustainable food. Cafes, restaurants, farmers, markets, bulk food stores who are reducing the impact on the planet by reducing waste, food waste, plastic waste, sourcing locally, finding organics anything like that and you can also share posts recipes food that you're growing your appreciation of nature your bushwalk your beach cleaner anything that helps each other and the planet on today's podcast i'm once again talking to jeremy kuzmarov because we didn't get to finish last time and there was much more to talk about we decided to get together and chat about the cia's more well-known operations such as gladio mk ultra Chaos, Paperclip and Mockingbird, to name but a few. And uh, this will give you a very clear picture on what they've been doing around the world. And Jeremy is just about to release a new book, Warmonger, How Clinton's Malign Foreign Policy Launched the US Trajectory from Bush 2 to Biden. So be sure to check that out. I'm going to get one myself. So without further ado, here is Jeremy Kuzmarov. Jeremy Kuzmarov, welcome back to the show. It's my pleasure. We did an hour and a half podcast last time and we ran out of time and I'm sure it still doesn't justify the amount of work that you've done and you have a book coming out 
about uh, Bill Clinton. Yeah, more longer, how Clinton's malign foreign policy shaped the U.S. trajectory from Bush uh, the second to Biden. And that will be out any day now? Yeah, and it, it looks at how you know Clinton set the groundwork for a lot of the um, disastrous foreign policies, whether it's a war in Ukraine, you know, confrontation to Russia, because he basically started the new Cold War by expanding NATO toward Russia's borders in violation of a promise of, of uh, George H.W. Bush. Uh, and he you know, interfered in, in Russia in the elections to put in Boris Yeltsin, and uh, really um, created an adversarial relationship with Russia uh, when there were, you know, opportunities for a cordial one with the end of the Cold War. And then, you know, you look at things like Iraq. I mean, Clinton really set the groundwork for the invasion of Iraq. He was publicizing this false claim of Saddam, you know, weapon of mass destruction and playing up this threat that Scott Ritter, U.N. weapons inspector, in the 90s, you know, had had said that there were no weapon of mass destruction, but Clinton was, and he even went on TV with the Secretary of Defense to warn, you know, to make this uh, basically fear-based presentation about how Iraq was this menace with its WMD, and he was bombing Iraq. I mean, the Iraq war, it's really a continuous war from the first Gulf War through the, you know, second Bush administration invasion. I mean, even today, the U.S. still has troops in Iraq. It's a, a 25, 30-year war on Iraq, and Clinton perpetuated, you know, he was carrying out extensive bombing operations, and he ratcheted up and, and promoting, he was supporting these dissident elements against Saddam Hussein, who are these very unsavory political figures like Ahmed Khalabi, uh, who became famous later when the U.S. tried to install them after overthrowing Saddam. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of continuity in general. You can go into a lot of different cases, which is what the book does. But, you know, there's a pattern of continuity uh, that I think a lot of people don't always recognize. They tend to personalize politics. But I think we see a lot of continuity between administrations, especially in the realm of foreign policy. And I present the Clinton years as a kind of turning point because there were establishment figures like Robert S. McNamara, the architect of the Vietnam War, uh, been the defense secretary, said, well, the Cold War's over, now's the time for a peace dividend, and we should cut our military budget, and we should invest you know, in improving our economy and our society, invest in education and science and health care. McNamara said that, not some you know, leftist uh, uh, activist. Uh, but unfortunately, Clinton went in the opposite direction, and I, I think he hoodwinked liberals. He conveyed this image that he was a child of the 60s, but he was never really part of those movements. And in fact, there's evidence that he was recruited as a CIA operative in the 60s and was an informant on the anti-war movement because he did participate in some protests in London against the Vietnam War. But uh, there's evidence that would indicate he may have been an informant. So it was really a hoodwinking of the public, and he uh, used these false humanitarian pretexts to justify renewed uh, American military interventions at the end of the Cold War, you know, claiming the U.S. had to go in to save human rights, like in the Balkans, and stop genocide. And really, uh, the, the, it was, uh, I mean, the way he was presenting it had little to do with the reality of the conflict. You know, the Serbs were presented as the 
pure aggressors and committing genocide. There's really no evidence of that. I mean, it was a complex conflict, but the Serbs have been trying to get it, you know, to, to keep Yugoslavia together. And yes, they committed atrocities in the war, but the Croats and Muslims committed horrible atrocities too. So in any event, the long story short is that he, he misrepresented overseas conflicts to create this false humanitarian pretext and that seemed to win over liberal audiences in support of the military intervention. Uh, and that was a coup for the warfare state, the military-industrial complex, basically, in my argument. So a conservative leader couldn't have pulled off, I don't think, what, what Clinton did. These wars, the narrative in the media, it begins, like, for instance, Ukraine, they only talk about the war beginning when Russia invades or this Middle Eastern conflict at the moment began on October 7. But quite often these battles or have been building up or in the planning for decades. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, in the case of Ukraine, yeah, you can even go back to the 90s. I mean, there was a strategy at the end of the Cold War where the United States wanted to pry Ukraine away from the Russian orbit. You know, they, they really saw a great opportunity. Now the Soviet Union has collapsed. This is our opportunity to move in for the kill and to dominate the whole region, you know, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And, you know, Brzezinski, the great grand strategist of U.S. foreign policy, you know, said, oh, that's the key you know, to world domination because there's so much, you know, wealth there. And you can even go back to British, you know, uh, theorists, you know, for the British Empire said, you know, Central and, uh, and Southeast Asia is crucial uh, for world domination because of the oil and uh, gas wealth, so uh, natural gas resources. So, yeah, and Eastern Europe, you know, is, is on the threshold of that. So, uh, and, you know, the key, I think, also is to, to isolate Russia, to weaken and isolate Russia. So that really was the strategy going back to the 90s. And, yeah, we've seen it play out in real time and the disastrous consequences because they it was a, a and uh, I think it was Victoria Newland admitted that the US had spent five billion dollars since the end of the Cold War on Ukraine with the goal of putting it in, in, the, in the US orbit integrating with Europe and prying it away from Russia so they could isolate Russia um, and yeah they spent billions and billions of dollars and they turned the Ukrainian people against the Russians uh, and look where it has resulted in basically provoked Russia, uh, fostered the you know quasi secession of the eastern provinces who were uh, dominated by ethnic Russians and much more close with Russia you know culturally and economically than the western part of Ukraine. Uh, and they waged a war after that. Vote for autonomy. They attacked the people of eastern Ukraine. And it was likely designed to draw the Russians in. I think they actually wanted a war. And the, the Minsk peace agreements was um, a joke. I mean, Angela Merkel admitted that they just signed that to buy time so that they could build up Ukraine's military capability. And they had no intention of honoring the Minsk agreements. Uh, so they wanted this war. But, yeah, it was part of a longer-term strategy to try and break Ukraine away from Russia, turn the Ukrainian people against Russia. And that started in the Clinton years, and that's why I, I say a lot of those horrible policies that we see playing out now uh, originate with, with Bill Clinton. And going back to your point that you don't think uh, a president who wasn't from that liberal 
minded side of things would have achieved it. It's myself included, someone who wasn't paying attention, although I suspected something like 9-11 was, was a bit of a, a plan or a hoax, you, you see how the media shapes your your belief system if you're not looking into it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the Minsk Accords. We talked last time about the uh, the pipeline, the gas pipeline that was, was blown up. If people aren't seeing these stories in the media, which they aren't because they shape the way people see it, they're, they're not aware of what's going on in the background. Absolutely, yeah. And I think one thing they do is that um, they, tr- they they make partisan politics everything, you know. So if you're a Democrat, uh, you know, and, and the media, I mean, in the United States, the media is divided in this way. There are certain outlets that are pro-democratic party like CNN, MSNBC, uh, and New York Times, you know. They favor more the centrist wing of the, the Democratic Party, like the Clinton wing. And then, you know, Fox is Republican, so, and they want Republicans to watch Fox. And, you know, if you watch Fox, they just uh, all the time attack the Democrats and how stupid and bad evil the Democrats are. If you watch CNN, it's how bad Trump is uh, and how bad the Republicans are. And I, I think that's the goal is you, you have to identify with one side or the other, and they want to pit everybody against each other. And I think my book you know, hopefully would open up people's thinking that, this is wrong because, uh, you know, uh, the whole system was rigged. And, you know, so Clinton was the favorite son of the Democrats. So you're supposed to, if you're a liberal, you're supposed to support them uh, and defend them. And I think liberals were blinded because, uh, you know, I also wrote a book about Obama. And it's the same phenomenon. Uh, and they're blinded that this guy is doing the bidding, really, of the, the oligarchy. Uh, and, and he's actually more effective in their service. Because a lot of, you know, in the past, a lot of the anti-war opposition, for instance, came from liberal sector, like in the Vietnam War, you know, the liberal left. And the liberal left would tend to be against, you know, corporate power and corporate domination over politics. Uh, but, you know, with Clinton, you have the complete sellout of the Democratic Party to, the, to corporate interests and corporate power. And I trace that back to Clinton's time when he was the governor of Arkansas, and he courted, you know, major uh, corporate elements in the state, which is Walmart, Tyson Chicken, the huge chicken manufacturer, and also Stevens Investment Bank, this major, the largest investment bank outside of uh, Wall Street. So these are the big, big-time player in Arkansas, and that's who he was in league with. Uh, and so he sold out, like, the AFL-CIO, you know, labor uh, in Arkansas, and that was the pattern of his presidency. Uh, so he was not really a liberal president in any respect, but if you're on the liberal end, you're supposed to worship him. Yeah, and, and and he effectively manipulated liberal public opinion to support all these wars. And we see that even today, like Ukraine, liberals tend to be, in the U.S., the liberals have been a strong supporter of the Ukraine war and military aid to Ukraine. Uh, so uh, I think that's part of the phenomenon you're describing, that there's some higher, you know, the oligarch, oligarchy is kind of manip- deliberately manipulating people. Yeah, and some people don't, you know, pay a lot of attention and just go about their own lives. Uh, but then you have other people who uh, they try and uh, hook them into this partisan politics and they uh, fall into these traps, I think, is, is what I'm trying to suggest. 
when they do that, and they just defend a Democrat like Clinton uh, or an Obama uh, because they're against the Republican. And they may have good reasons not to like the Republicans, but uh, they're not seeing the bigger picture, and they're being manipulated in, in support of these wars and in support of the uh, you know corporate monolith and growing rightward shift uh, of American politics. I think it's the most frustrating thing because the same thing happens here. And although Australia probably supports a lot of these wars a little bit more quietly and isn't blamed for their involvement quite as much as the US, people believe that, you know, if they're from, in our country, the Labor side, then they're a bit more... Uh, for the people and a bit more anti-corporate, but really it's the the corporations doing the same bidding, they're working for the same people, and then people are surprised when their promises from elections aren't followed. But it <laughs> comes as no surprise if you're paying yeah. attention to this stuff. And it's similar in Canada, I know, because uh, I grew up in Canada, so I followed their politics very closely. And it's seen many Western European countries. It seemed all the same in all these countries. Mm. So let's get on to uh, why we wanted to continue this podcast. We left a lot out last time and we, as we said, we could have talked for ages. You talk a lot about the operations of the CIA, the, the most well-known, and I wrote some of them down. Could you go through some of those operations? Because, again, I think people have heard these names, but they really have no idea what sort of techniques they involve and torture and things like that that occurred. Yeah, well, I guess some of the best known, uh, we may cover some of them last time, is like the you know Guatemalan coup of 1954, the Iran coup of 1953. Yeah, and those were seen as great successes of U.S. foreign policy because, I mean, at the time... Uh, very few in the American public knew that these uh, coups had taken place, and the U.S. achieved its own objectives in those coups by removing, you know, troublesome leaders. Uh, in the case of Iran, Mossadegh wanted to nationalize Iran's oil industry and undercut, you know, uh, oil uh, industry in Iran. Western Oil Corporation in Guatemala. It was a, a mild leftist leader, Benz, who had challenged uh, the United Fruit Company and wanted to buy out some of its fallow land. Um, and then, of course, uh, you had the, I guess, the, the CIA became, I think, some pe- more concern developed in the 60s when the Bay of Pigs, you know, the situation in Cuba uh, gained more publicity because that was a major failing of the CIA, when they try, you know, you had a more radical revolution in Cuba, and actually, you know, Che Guevara had been in Guatemala, and then he went to Cuba, you know, he was an Argentine doctor who had become more radical uh, based on what he observed uh, of politics in Latin America and U.S. interference there, and he said Cuba will not be Guatemala, and we're going to be prepared and ready to fight. We know the Yankees will come and try and overthrow our revolution. And that was a more radical revolution that was proposing sweeping land reform and to nationalize industry, uh, like the United Fruit Company, more more take over their lands uh, and give it back to the Cuban people. And the Cuban prepared for the American invasion and attempt to overthrow the Castro-led revolution, and succeeded, you know, in, in driving back the U.S. force at the Bay of Pig, you know, the, the U.S. and CIA-trained force. 
uh, and the Cuban Revolution endured, and that was a humiliation for the CIA. And the CIA, you know, blamed Kennedy for not giving them more air support, uh, and that created a, a rift between the CIA and and Kennedy. Um, uh, that some believe was a reason that some CIA operatives were involved in the Kennedy assassination. And then, yeah, there are many other interventions. I mean, there's an excellent book by William Bloom called Killing Hope I can recommend, CIA and military intervention, U.S. Uh, military and CIA intervention since World War II, and it's kind of encyclopedic of all these CIA interventions. <laughs> and there's so many, but, I mean, some of the best known... Uh, would be like, well, Congo in the 60s, the CIA was involved after the murder of Patrice Lumamba, who had tried to nationalize Congo's uh, resources, and he was the first post-colonial leader. He was assassinated with CIA support. The CIA had provided the poisons, and I think ultimately Belgium was involved as well, and Belgium and Belgium proxy forces got him. Uh, but then some of his followers were trying to regain influence and power, and the CIA uh, was involved in the covert operation to uh, basically destroy uh, his uh, followers and supporters who wanted to revitalize his economic program. And that was known as the Simba War, and the CIA even was involved in providing helicopters and uh, airplanes to crush these rebels, pro-Lumambas uh, pro rebels. Uh, and there are other major operations, like Indonesia in 1965, you had a, a left-leaning socialist leader in Indonesia who took over after Dutch colonial rule named Ahmed Sukarno. And Indonesia is also very rich uh, as far as mineral wealth and very important country strategically in Southeast Asia. Uh, and the CIA was involved in a... Uh, a long attempt to undermine Sukarno. Actually, I did research into American police training, clandestine police training program in the Cold War, and that was a front often for CIA operations. Like in Indonesia, because the army, like in the late 50s and early 60s, the army was considered loyal to Sukarno. So the CIA, and it was uh, some of the funding was through USAID. Their uh, strategy was to try and develop a police mobile brigade uh, that would be anti-Sukarno and that could sh move against him when the army was more loyal to him. And they, the CIA ultimately cultivated some distant officers in the army led by General Suharto and used this mobile brigade to uh, carry out a coup in 1965. And there was an elaborate psychological warfare operation um, uh, to make it look like the communists, because the Indonesian Communist Party was very strong, and Sukarno had legalized it. And it was a psychological warfare operation to make it look like the Communist Party had mounted a coup by some renegade officers, but really it was a false flag operation, a plan uh, with the help of the CIA, and uh, this uh, right-wing general named Suharto claimed he was saving the country from a communist takeover, which is similar to how Hitler gained power in the 30s, that they staged the Reichstag burning and uh, falsely blamed it on a communist youth. And the Nazis claimed they were saving Germany uh, from a communist takeover. And so that was the same uh, strategy in, in Indonesia. And Suharto took power and then systematically massacred uh, his opponents and uh, people identified. You know, the CIA had developed blacklists 
uh, of the communists uh, and the communist party and it's believed that Barack Obama's mother was a CIA operative well, it's not confirmed but she has all the background uh, to make it very likely that she was one of the operatives in Operation ProSims because she was an anthropologist uh, working in a, a hotbed of communist activity in Indonesia, East Java and so she would have had the and she had the language skills and uh, ability uh, to gain information on villagers in her daytime work as an anthropologist, and she was also involved in microfinancing projects. If it was not her, it was others like her in this operation where they would get data on the villagers' political affiliations and cultivate these blacklists, and then Suharto would send his goons to kidnap them or arrest them, uh, and many got tortured, many in this case got butchered and killed. And this was a prelude to the Operation Phoenix. They used the same method in Vietnam. They developed blacklists, and they used computers. This was some of the first uses of computers. The CIA would provide computers, and some of it was imported under these police programs and the rubric that were training and professionalizing their police force. And so they're providing them with computers so they can you know, track criminals, but they're really also you know, keeping these computerized lists uh, of communists, and they would then hunt them down, and they used proxy forces. So the same strategy in Indonesia to fortify the Suharto government and stamp out the Indonesian Communist Party, and that was a real threat to American corporate interests, you know, in Indonesia and, and power throughout Southeast Asia, because Indonesia was considered so crucial. And U.S., you know, after Suharto took over, like U.S. oil companies moved in and mining companies uh, moved in dramatically uh, after that. So, um, so yeah, that's a kind of modus operandi of the CIA, and they're involved in real dark death squad-type activities, like in Indonesia, Vietnam, or in Indonesia, at least a million got killed. You know, they made a documentary uh, in the last five or six years, I think it's by Josh Oppenheimer, um, is his name called the Killing Fields or something like that, the Kill Zone. Uh, and he, I saw the documentary, and I don't know if you've seen it, but he interviewed these uh, older Indonesians who participated in these pogroms, and they're open about how how they just killed, and slaughtered all these communists or suspected communists, and a lot of ethnic Chinese were killed as well. And Phoenix program was like a murder inc as well. And then in South America, you have the Operation Condor, and you know Henry Kissinger presided over that, where they were doing the same thing. They were developing blacklists. You know they were supporting coups against left-leaning governments, like in Brazil and Chile with Pinochet and Argentina. And then they were coordinating the intelligence services to hunt down leftists, including in many cases even left, just simply left of center politicians. You know, a lot of civilians got killed, and even professional politicians who were like maybe like equivalent to like a Bernie Sanders type figure, uh, a more left leaning guy who uh, wants to redistribute wealth. They could end up on these blacklists and, and be assassinated under Condor, which was modeled after the Operation Phoenix and, and these death squad operations in Indonesia. And then it came into the United States, some di uh, Chilean intelligence operatives and a CIA operative named Michael Townley murdered the former Chilean former, uh, foreign minister under Allende socialist government. Uh, Orlando Letelier was murdered in a car bombing in, in Washington, D.C. 
so it really started to come into the United States, these terrorist operations. And we see it now in Ukraine. If you want to point to a continuity, it was been, it's reported openly how Ukraine has been the commando units trained by the CIA. The, the Washington Post had a huge expose about this that was very candid uh, in the last month that the CIA was heavily involved in training the Ukrainian secret services and that these secret services have been going out assassinating um, politicians and journalists that are considered pro-Russian or you know, traitors to Ukraine. And yesterday it was reported that they killed a politician. He was going out for a walk in a park in Moscow, and he was murdered. And he was a politician who was in a party that was against Zelensky's party. So they just murdered him. And they murdered uh, Daria Dugina, was a... Uh, uh, the uh, you know a, a woman journalist whose father was a well-known philosopher, she was murdered in a car bomb, uh, and there have been a lot of these incidents in eastern Ukraine. They've been murdering politicians, and this gets almost no attention uh, in the American or Western media. There's no protests uh, about these uh, horrendous acts, and you know, a lot of the eastern Ukrainian uh, politicians have been murdered and leaders murdered, like in cafe. They're having a coffee. And there's a bomb that goes off in the cafe. Uh, and for some reason, we're only uh, meant to associate terrorism with you know, people of Middle Eastern descent. And yet you have these CIA-trained forces blowing up cafes, murdering politicians, murdering all the leaders of eastern Ukraine. We're a popular leader. That, that's a popular cause. You know, uh, when, when you had the Maidan coup, uh, they felt no identification with that coup, and their uh, region is very closely tied with Russia culturally and the Ukrainian government and economically. And the Ukrainian government had passed laws to impose the Ukrainian language in their schools, and and the people don't want that. And their politicians who are representing their people were murdered, uh, and there was no attention or, or outrage at all about this. But it, it fits sadly a pattern. Uh, of CIA support for for terrorism, uh, and it's 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 a moral abomination. What was Operation Gladio? Yeah, this was another uh, sinister terrorist program. Basically, this was run by NATO as well as CIA operatives. Uh, uh, in the early years of the Cold War, I guess their concern was that the you know communists may come to power, and like in Italy, the communists were very strong. They had strong leaders. Uh, who had opposed the fascists and Mussolini. Uh, and uh, so um, uh, under Gladio, they basically recruited an underground army. Usually it was led, like in Italy and other European countries, they did the same thing. And they were trained to be activated in case the communists were becoming too powerful or in case there was a threatened communist takeover or coup, they would be activated. But it's, and they're often far-right extremists, uh, in some cases pro-fascists. And um, uh, in the case of Italy, they actually carried out black flag terrorist activities where, like, in, uh, I, I have to, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on the date. It was sometime in the 70s. There was a famous bombing of the Bologna rail station, killing 11 people, including mostly farmers uh, who were riding the train. Uh, to sell their products, and uh, the bombing was blank. They planted materials on a left-wing journalist uh, to make it look like the Italian communists and leftists had carried out this ghastly 
terrorist attack, but in fact it was elements of the Gladio. It were these underground agents who had been trained uh, by the CIA and were tied with NATO as part of a, a strategy of tension to, to make the public fearful and to view the left, to discredit the political left. And they were also involved in the kidnapping and assassination of Aldo Moro, who was a, a prime minister of Italy, and he was a progressive politician. He was not a, he was like a cons- um he was part of the Christian Democrats, which was like a center-left party. But he was very compassionate toward the poor, and he also wanted, you know, a good relation with the. He wanted to ease tensions in the Cold War, and you know, have good relations with both East and West. And that kind of policy was frowned upon in the Cold War year, then by a figure like Kissinger and Dulles, who didn't want, you know. Uh, you know, who had the attitude, it's our way or the highway, you know, if you're not, uh, if you're too sympathetic to the Soviet Union or you want peace, and no, you have to totally align with the West and have a hostile policy toward the Soviet Union and take a war posture, that's kind of what they wanted, and so they targeted Aldo Moro, he was kidnapped and assassinated, and the case is still, there were par- we know a lot about this because there were parliamentary investigations in Italy, both about the Bologna uh, train bombing and about the Aldo Moro kidnapping assassination. And there's still hearings going on and uh, the legal uh, battles are going on. There were some culprits identified in these killings and sent to prison, um, ultimately. But yeah, uh, there's an excellent book on Gladio by Danielle Ganzer, who's a Swiss researcher I'd recommend for more information on it. And he has chapters on the many different countries that Gladio operated. But Italy is, is one of the more notorious because they actually carried forward these black flag terrorist operations. I'm seeing more and more that when we see terrorist operations, it's uh, either a... Uh, a false flag, or it was organized by the CIA and not terrorists, as we're led to believe. Well, yeah, I mean, um, one thing is, I mean, the media does, never gives a context. You know, I, I, there was a book I read by Robert Pape, who's a scholar at the University of Chicago, and he shows that, you know, most terrorism results from a political cause. Uh, it's usually, you know, foreign occupation. Uh, of land, and so that you know could be in the case of the Palestine, you know the the Israeli occupation, the West Bank and Gaza has prompted uh, terrorism. But yeah, and then the media totally omits the Western support for terrorism, whether it's state terrorism or whether it's you know these kind of black flag operation. Yeah, because even uh, I mean I've examined some cases in depth. Um, firstly, uh, in the case of Middle East terrorism with Al Qaeda, you know. Al-Qaeda uh, had been infiltrated by the CIA, and there's some suspicion about some of the bombings, even the World Trade Center 1993 bombing, uh, whether that was also some kind of black flag operation, uh, and whether there were FBI or CIA provocateurs uh, who carried out the attack with the goal of blaming it on Al-Qaeda so you'd have an enemy that would justify because the U.S. has expanded its military empire in the Middle East dramatically, uh, and that has been justified uh, as containing terrorism, you know, fighting terrorism. So in a way, it would make sense if they manufacture this terror threat. Uh, now, I've also looked into the Oklahoma City bombing in some depth, um, and there is evidence um, that that may have been some kind of false flag incident uh, 
and the motive may have been to pass draconian legislation that empowered law enforcement agencies and uh, that uh, you know, limited American uh, civil liberties and freedoms. Uh, it can only be achieved when the public, because, you know, and that was a strategy that Gladio employed overtly in Italy, a strategy of tension that you want the public to be fearful of terrorism and to uh, be fearful of, of this, you know, you know, supposedly evil left-wing groups who are perpetrating it, and they suspend their rational judgment and they'll support draconian legislation, you know, to get the terrorists so this horrible event never happens again, uh, and so that the evildoers are punished. Uh, uh, that's the only way they can get away with certain kinds of legislation, because, you know, in the United States or in Australia, I mean, we value certain liberties, uh, constitutional liberties and freedoms, and we don't want to see uh, our, our country evolving into a police state. But if, if people have suspended judgment, then they'll sign away their liberties and empower the law enforcement, uh, move toward totalitarianism. And that, and you mentioned 9-11, there's a lot of question marks about that uh, as to whether that was a black flag incident, and there are signs uh, that it was, so... Of course, then all the laws come in so that they, there's more powers and and less freedoms for the people. Exactly. What is MK Ultra? Yeah, this was another sinister program, uh, and yeah, some of this stuff you can't, you couldn't really write a science fiction novel <laughs> uh, as sinister as what actually transpired. Um, I think it started. Because in the Korean War, there was this paranoia that, you know, there were some American soldiers who were captured by the Chinese and North Koreans, and they admitted that the U.S. had carried out germ warfare in Korea. Now, it appeared that there's corroborating evidence that what they said was true, but uh, in the United States, then there became this idea that these uh, soldiers had been brainwashed by the Chinese and Koreans into admitting this and that the Chinese had this sophisticated brainwashing program. And so the, the CIA felt that we have to outdo the Chinese uh, and, and Koreans and develop our own program. And they started testing drugs and LSD uh, on unwitting uh, people as part of this effort at mind control. You know, they thought LSD could be this a magic uh, drug that could be used in interrogation and that could be a way to mind effective mind control uh, that the Chinese supposedly had achieved. And this program really uh, was uh, uh, stepped up in the 50s. And there were all kinds, well, and it only came to light in the 70s when you had the church committee hearing was a major congressional investigation into the abuses of the CIA in the Cold War and it was uh, involved in exposing MKUltra for the public, and then there was uh, subsets of hearings about it, and the program was officially terminated. But yeah, it revealed then, but yeah, again, it revealed that there were all kinds of illegal uh, experiments with LSD, uh, that you know, patients in psychiatric facilities uh, um, were tested, you know, there were unauthorized tests conducted on them, to uh, for, by scientists who are trying to better understand the impact of LSD, and some of this was uh, done in an extremely unethical way, and it led to um, you know people had serious traumas, and some committed suicide because of it, and it led to various lawsuits. Um, so now uh, the program yeah was officially 
terminated. However, it is believed that they use religious cults to continue to do some experimentation. And, you know, people in religious cults are uh, easily manipula uh, manipulable people. Um, and, uh, for instance, uh, Jonestown may have been a continued experiment. The, the, uh, there was this commune they said, uh, People's Temple was this religious cult based in San Francisco that attracted uh, support of the 60s movements and a lot of hippies who wanted a, a better society, freer society, and had certain values. And they kind of manipulated these people, and they set up a commune in um, Guyana to supposedly live out their principles and cultivate the land. But there may have been a sinister side that they were continuing the MK Ultra because Jim Jones, I did an article about this, he had a background in the CIA, and he'd been involved with the CIA in Guyana and Brazil in the 1960s. Uh, so I believe MK Ultra may have continued. And of course, uh, the Jonestown ended in tragedy when most of the people were, were massacred there. Uh, so. So it may have continued, and who knows, it probably continues today. And some of the, the program, you know, very secretly maybe, and some of those programs, yeah, also were doing all kind of uh, experiments with interrogation. And, you know, some of the torture techniques that came out in the War on Terror had long been experimented with by the CIA, and some of them including through the MK Ultra. What is Operation Chaos? Uh, operation Chaos was an operation where they were because the CIA is not supposed to be is supposed to focus on foreign threats. And I mean, when the agency was set up, there was a legitimate aspect uh, to have, you know establish a professional intelligence service that would uh, you know have a, a powerful nation like the United States that would monitor foreign threats to the country and that would provide good information to the president and his advisors about developments in other foreign countries. So. And, you know, Truman later lamented that, uh, unfortunately, the CIA got involved in all this skullduggery that I was describing and some of these dark policies. If it stuck to his original mission of just gathering intelligence, uh, it could have actually uh, helped uh, in the development of sounder <coughs> foreign policies. But under the Constitution, yeah, the, the and mandate of the CIA was, you know, focus on external threats and operate overseas, not within the United States. The FBI's function is to protect national security within the United States. So Operation Chaos was a violation of the CIA charter and, and, and law because the CIA was monitoring mail. Um, and this was also exposed, I believe, in the church hearing. And also, yes, Seymour Hirsch was involved in some, is a great investigative journalist who exposed a lot of, uh, you know, unethical and illegal uh, policies of the CIA and other U.S. government agencies and military. Uh, so, you know, he wrote some pioneering articles on that, but involved, yes, illegal spying on Americans domestically, including opening their mail. And I think a lot of the targets were people like in the anti-war movement. And, yeah, and this was a violation <coughs> as well because these were not actual threats to American national security in any way. These were law-abiding American citizens who opposed the war in Vietnam, which most sensible people would oppose. It was a horrible war. Uh, so they really had done nothing wrong. It was, it was their legal right to be involved in political activism, peaceful activism against the war, and they were the ones uh, targeted under Operation Chaos. I can see some parallels with some of the legislation that's coming out in countries like Australia, 
where they have this misinformation and disinformation bill where they'll be uh, watching people's social media accounts and deciding what's true and not true. And I guess, as we spoke about last time, that something like Facebook could be an easy way for intelligence agencies to spy on populations. Well, yeah, it's believed that Facebook was set up by the CIA. I I don't know that much about this, uh, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, And I've heard that uh, um, different points and and people who looked into it have told me that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that that the Facebook, what better for the CIA? Because people put out all this personal information about themselves. So and they also air their political views on Facebook. So. This is a perfect tool for the CIA and other law enforcement agencies. Um, and, yeah, that is their dream, really, to be able I mean, they have a totalitarian mentality. And I think that's why, you know, if you, if you look into the pandemic and the pandemic planning, you know, the CIA was behind that. And, I mean, there are uh, growing evidence that the CIA may have helped to actually cultivate the uh, COVID-19 virus in labs. And then escape the lab, whether through a leak or deliberately, we don't know for sure. But um, you know, clearly this was like a golden opportunity for them, and they had been, uh, you know, cultivating this virus. And, and because this is the dream of, of of total control that they always wanted, and you know, Facebook enhances that for them. But the pandemic, they can impose, you know, they have been carrying out pandemic simulations. The CIA was involved in top intelligence official like Avril Hine, the director of national intelligence, was running these pandemic simulations well before the coronavirus broke out, which is all suspicious. How did they know that this virus would emerge? They were they had been planning for years how they would impose things like lockdowns and school closings and mandatory masks and vaccines and I mean, controlling everything about everybody, including their health, even if they want you know, or, or don't want any more vaccines, uh, uh, they are forced into doing that. That's that's a mentality of you know, to- totalitarian, and that's the mentality you have at, at the CIA, and that's why it's a very scary agency because they've supported totalitarianism in many countries abroad, and increasingly they're promoting it. In so-called you know, Western democracies, as I say, as we've been discussing, they're really not all that democratic at all, uh, and moving more and more toward Orwellian uh, nightmare. And with the new technologies at their disposal, uh, yeah, even George Orwell, that they can achieve what uh, was impossible in George Orwell's day. When I think back to the pandemic here in Australia, the uh, the mind control techniques. Uh, uh, pretty evident and and i guess people would would call you crazy for saying that but we had nearly 24 7 news conferences with politicians standing there and just inciting fear there was no common sense whether you believe in a virus or not making people stay inside rather than be outside in the sunshine uh because I, I remember we had quite a beautiful winter here that when when it happened so the weather was really nice people could have been outside in the sunshine but they were just telling people about the numbers and the death and it, it was really mind control and from that now you can have social credit type things you can have digital passports 
And that's what's talking, that's what they're talking about. And what would have been called conspiracy prior to COVID has all come true. And they're bringing out their, their digital passports and their central bank digital currencies. And it's just really a dream, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I think the CIA has long perfected techniques of mind control. Uh, yeah, and that's what the MK Ultra was. I mean, part of it was using drugs to try and manipulate people's mind and to better understand these drugs. But I think, yeah, it was ultimately uh, about mind control and psychological warfare. Uh, and the CIA had long specialized in that. And I mean, that's why they funded so much. A lot of the CIA activity, like, since the Cold War was funding academic journals and media, you know, planting journalists uh, to advance certain narratives and, and, and to condition people to think in certain ways and to support these policies that we've been describing that are horrific, uh, but that can be packaged in a certain way. And that was taken yet to pretty high art form in the 90s with this new you know, humanitarian intervention in the way that uh, overseas conflicts were presented. So, yeah, I think it all ties together. And also this strategy of tension I would describe with terrorism, and they do the same thing with this uh, pandemic. You know, they they make people fearful and they suspend rational judgment. So, yeah, they don't even go outside anymore because they're totally fearful and they just sign away their liberties. And that, that was the goal of these black flag terrorist operations, is that they're so fearful of terrorism and they fear this uh, evil, you know, left-wing or, or Islamic terrorist force that they'll just sign away all their liberties, and, and that's what they're doing in the pandemic now, this disease that, uh, yeah, is really nebulous, and for most people it's a flu, or it, you supposedly have it, but you don't even feel any symptoms, uh, so it's, it's actually a very strange disease, and it really, the people who are at risk are really people whose health is already in, in serious decline, like older people who have many other ailments. Uh, uh, but people were just willing to uh, easily uh, you know, sign away those liberties. And, you know, and there, there have been experiments like uh, on human psychology that I think the CIA is well aware of, like the Milgram experiment you're probably aware of, where, you know, how people are kind of conditioned to follow authority. Uh and they know that, or people, you know, you give them a little power, and uh, they, you know, easily abuse their power. They go on power trips, and you know, the pandemic was a perfect platform for that. I mean, I remember like going to libraries, and the librarian would start cussing me because I, I was sitting alone because they had the computers so far apart, and I can't breathe in this mask. I mean, I, I don't like wearing a mask at all, so I was like. I couldn't do it. I felt like I was suffocating. So I would put my, I would wear it just so I could go somewhere. I had to go or like use a library, but I would put it down and then he would uh, start yelling at me. And then I was reported and I, had, I was asked to leave and I, and I was even removed from a course I was teaching. They only allowed me in that period to teach online because I couldn't teach with a mask. Uh, I just couldn't do it anyway. But, but people were on these power trips so it's all out of the CIA, the, the, these psychological studies, and I think this was all all planned for, yeah. People doing the work of the CIA for them, making sure that everyone was wearing a mask because you were going to hurt grandma if you didn't wear your mask, which is just ridiculous when you consider the science. Mm -hmm. What about Operation Paperclip? 
Yeah, well, and some of these techniques come from Nazi techniques. You know, the Nazis uh, were, were most sinister group in, in history, but they were many of the Nazi uh, you know top leaders were quite clever, uh, and they used propaganda magnificently to serve their own ends. Um, and yeah, paperclip involved the recruitment of Nazi intelligence officials as well as Nazi scientists because. The Nazis, uh, you know, were had developed pretty sophisticated weapons programs, including biological warfare. So, paperclip. These Nazis, many of them were grade A war criminals who could have been tried at Nuremberg or executed, but instead they were rex- rescued by the CIA, brought to the United States, and uh, were involved in you know, either intelligence. You know, one famous recruit was Reinhard Gellin, was the chief of. Um, uh, German intelligence in the Soviet front in World War II. And, um, yeah, he was involved in the psychological warfare because he he played up the Soviet threat because he knew the Cold War was the only thing that would save him, and then he could you know be useful to the American because he had knowledge uh, about the Soviet Union uh, and KGB. Uh, so he played up the Russian threat, and he... Uh, helped to you know promote uh, this idea of a, a Russian threat to America, even though the Soviet Union had been decimated. You know they suffered 25 million deaths in World War II, and they were no threat at all. But Americans were led to believe that the Soviets were about to invade Europe, and that they were going to attack America, and they had to you know set up bomb shelters. And yeah, it's, it's totally detached from reality. But that's a success of propaganda, and like what we're discussing. <laughs> In the um, in the pandemic, so um, yeah, they they recruited these kind of people, and in the science realm, they recruited uh, Werner von Braun was the first head of NASA, and he had developed the V two rocket in Germany, and he had used slave labor, I believe, in that development, and they also recruited Dr. Kurt Blom, who was the head of Nazi biowarfare projects, and he helped develop the American biowarfare program at Fort Detrick, Maryland, where they developed anthrax and other diseases uh, that, that I think was deployed in Korea during the Korean War. So these were high-level Nazi scientists, including uh, people like Blom involved in the dark sciences, like uh, germ warfare, were recruited. There, uh, I don't know the number, but I think it was a sizable number of Nazi scientists and intelligence operatives, uh, well into the hundreds, recruited under Papercliff, and some have argued that contributes to Nazification of uh, American government intelligence agencies, that some of the sinister method, like MKUltra, came out of, of Nazi uh, practices. And certainly that's true for the U.S. germ warfare program, which, and that some, you know, if you re- I was just reading Robert Kennedy's new book, The Wuhan Cover-Up, suggests that there's a con- strong continuity between the um, uh, paperclip, the biowarfare program after World War II, and the manufacture of the coronavirus through gain-of-function research. I've heard you talk about uh, Goebbels, and uh, he was a, a master of propaganda, So, I, and I guess this ties in with paperclip as well. Yeah, I think they bore it. Well, Goebbels actually studied Woodrow Wilson uh, was a very effective propagandist in World War One because uh, in 1916 Woodrow Wilson campaigned for the U.S. presidency under the slogan, and this is his campaign slogan. You can find buttons with this. He kept us out of the war, 
And that's why people voted for him, because Americans did not want to become involved in the European conflict. They felt that that was something, a reflection of the corrupt politics of Europe. They had come you know, to the new world. They didn't want to be part of the politics of the old world and to send, you know, for American sons to die uh, in the European conflict. They voted for Wilson. Within seven months, <laughs> U.S. boys were fighting in Europe, and he enacted a huge propaganda operation establishing the Committee on Public Information, which was headed by George Creel, who was an advertising executive, and they pursued themes that are familiar to our own time of demonizing a foreign leader. They demonized the Kaiser incessantly, like they demonized Vladimir Putin today, uh, presenting him as the beast of Berlin. Uh, now it's a technique for building hatred against the Kaiser and getting Americans who had voted for Wilson because he kept them out of the war to actually support involvement in the war. And they they whipped up a fervor in the population. And I remember I read an account of a guy who later served in the United Nations who said he was a kid in World War One, and he went to a church service, and the pastor gave this fiery uh, anti-German speech and pro-war speech, and he said, let's go, bo we're going to boil the Kaiser. And the, the whole church got up and cheered <laughs> And then he's like, years later, he realized people were just had gone insane. But this is this conditioning, and I think we, you can see it in different contexts today, whether it's supporting the Russia war and the fervor they build against Putin or in the pandemic. Uh, uh, so, but Goebbels studied what Wilson had done, achieved. And the CPI, yeah, they use advertising. People in the advertising world who are very skilled at manipulating emotions, uh, Sigmund Freud's uh, nephew was involved, so their their masters of you know human understanding human psychology and how to play into certain human emotions and impulses, and um, they employed also historians um, and there were many different facets of this propaganda campaign, and included uh, efforts in schools uh, and rewriting of textbooks, and um, yeah, Goebbels studied all that and adopted that. You know, Goebbels was very. Uh, evil but smart man. He had written like 11 books uh, or something before he became the Nazi propaganda minister. And uh, yeah, he used the Wilson techniques and he, you know, to, to get the German people to support the insane Nazi policy that ultimately led to the ruin of Germany as well as the ruin of many other countries. And um, yeah, he said something. Um, he's often quoted for saying, "Oh, it's easy. You just blame, uh, uh, you know, blame the pacifists as traitors. You know, it's easy to get uh, people to support the war. You blame the pacifists as, as traitors, uh, or call them traitors." And he also said, "The key to successful propaganda is repeat the big lie over and over again." And that's what we see at the mass, whether it's a Putin evil or it's the unprovoked invasion uh, of Ukraine. Uh, you can pick the, the propaganda line, but they just repeat it over and over again. And that's why I think that, that the censorship is so important, because they can't have anybody uh, challenge. They, they have to repeat the same thing over and over so people will believe it, and that anybody who says otherwise is crazy, is a conspiracy or lunatic, and that's why they can't allow somebody to say it, you know, especially, and sometimes these campaigns have, say, one or two year duration, so in the first year, you can't have anybody, so any respectable or real mainstream publication, you cannot have one op-ed saying, oh, well, let's think, you know, maybe Putin's acting a bit rationally, or, you know, let's think that 
try and develop a balanced understanding of, you know, you can't have an op-ed saying that. Every op-ed has to say Putin is evil and he's intent on taking over Europe. Or you can't have one op-ed by Robert Kennedy questioning uh, these vaccines or the, the mass mandate. Uh, the lie has to repeat over and over. And if Kennedy's mentioned in your paper, he has to be, because anytime Robert Kennedy's mentioned in New York Times, it's not just, oh, Robert Kennedy said this, uh, and he comes up in the article. It's conspiracy theorist and anti-vaxxer, Robert Kennedy said this. So they have to prejudice you against him. Or, you know, and it's, uh, for an anti-war view, yeah, you can't have that. The, the anti-war person has to be uh, labeled as a kind of traitor. Uh, and that's how um, the propaganda system operates. And, and Goebbels was a theorist, I guess, of, of successful propaganda. And I think U.S. leaders studied him, and he studied Woodrow Wilson. And you see this in the media reports where they show those little uh, video compilations of all the different uh, channels all repeating the exact same line over and over, and you saw that during yeah. the pandemic. Safe and effective and conspiracy theorist and anti-vaxxer, those things were repeated over and over again. Yeah. Was was the term, because I've also heard that the term conspiracy theorist was propagated by the CIA because of the Kennedy assassination. Yes. I believe the term may have been used before, but there is a memo, and I actually I did an article about Robert Kennedy, and I argued that the uh, propaganda attacks on Robert Kennedy uh, follow the CIA playbook, and that the term, because uh, and I played off how Kennedy was constantly being labeled a conspiracy theorist, and yeah, I traced, there was a memo after the Warren Commission report, you know, and the Warren Commission report was set up to promote the idea that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin, which is a, a complete lie, that Lee Harvey Oswald was the uh, main assassin uh, and the lone shooter of JFK, and that he was psychologically deranged, and it was just a lone nut who killed JFK. Uh, that was false. But uh, the Warren Commission rubber-stamped that view, and then the CIA issued a memo, and Alan Dulles, who'd been the director of the CIA in the 50s and who hated uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, was on the Warren Commission, and then there was a memo issued by the CIA uh, saying that um, anybody who questioned the Warren Commission findings should be labeled as a conspiracy theorist and a far-left, uh, uh, I think they used far-left and conspiracy theorist, and that was a way to discredit them and to try and validate the Warren Commission report. And, yeah, it's kind of taken its a life of its own now. Anybody who questions uh, U.S. policy, whether it's 9-11 or, um, you know, any kind of policy really is often um, given this label conspiracy theorist uh, since that time. And, you know, there, there are a lot of books written uh, showing that Oswald couldn't have been the lone assassin, but they were always maligned and attacked as conspiracy theorists. Uh, like books, you know, started to come out in the 60s, 70s, by researchers like Mark Lane, who was one of the pioneering researchers in the Kennedy uh, assassination, doing real research into what happened. He was maligned, of course, as a conspiracy theorist, as the CIA directed the, the media to do and others. To that, there are a lot of paid assets of the CIA in the media, and especially the main, most influential media in the U.S., like Washington Post and New York Times, so they follow this to a T, and they still do.
it's very effective because you see it now and quite often you know, something like the pandemic or the war in Ukraine, if you suggest that there might be other things at play, quite often members of society will just label you a conspiracy theorist without having an alternate argument <laughs> or their yeah. their argument is based around the media reports not debunking your question exactly they don't even want to engage uh in what is written and i once said uh, an article i have a, a a cousin who worked at 60 minutes and there was a story to a covert action and i was like oh why don't you pursue something like this and she like sent some kind of uh, you know nasty uh, email. Oh, this guy you quoted, he's a he's a nutcase, and 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 you referenced some article where he had been attacked. And this is actually a CIA operative who was like an insider and whistleblower. And of course, he had been lying in some articles uh, a while back when he was exposing something terrible the CIA had done. And, you know, so she just, like, referenced, oh, look, and it was some mainstream uh, publication just wrote some hit piece, again, maligning the guy. But actually, um, a lot of his evidence had been corroborated uh, in other independent investigations, but that seemed characteristic. They just, you know, smear somebody's character, and they don't even engage with the facts of what he was saying. And, like, the Robert Kennedy book, it was never reviewed uh and, you know, and I, I mentioned it to people, they just, like, scoffed at it. Uh, and then they like, did you read it? And like, oh, no. <laughs> they didn't even bother to read it. And that's often what ha I find, like, I publish an article. Unfortunately, I can't even, you know, I, I've taught in universities, and I try and, you know, get my stuff out there more in the mainstream, even in my community. And I'll send it to somebody, you know, who's, like, uh, you know, university professor or, like in a synagogue, you know, trying to get so I can give a lecture, and they just like, oh, that's you know, left wing. We're not gonna, you know, they. I mean, they don't. It's just like a, so juvenile, uh, and like the 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 intellectual standard is so low that I don't even know if they read it or you know, they just like dismiss it. Oh, it comes across as a certain way. So I'm, you know, you can't. So you can't even have a debate or. You know, they just shut off any kind of debate, and, and usually it's it's you know key topics. If you have any kind of view that diverts from the uh, mainstream, you know, propaganda view, they just shut off the debate. And yeah, any of the mainstream publication, if you submit an article, the in the United States, the New York Times or whatever, you know, uh, New Yorker or you know the top uh, supposedly top journals or newspapers. You'll never hear the time of day uh, from them. It's sad, yeah, but it's and that's a very effective propaganda because people don't realize that what they're reading is propaganda and that they they've shut out these views that that people aren't even aware that the, often that these views exist or uh, and, and these newspapers just shut it off and they convey this air of respectability and 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 good journalism and and they do produce some good journalism. I mean, some of the articles are well researched or written. Uh, so people, you know, read these kind of publications and think, oh, this is good and this is the truth, and they don't realize that certain views have been censored or certain topics are taboo. Like the 9-11, you can never, you never, mainstream publication would never even touch on that topic. Even though there's a lot of good books, well-researched books now written about it, you could read, but they'll never be reviewed. And if it's ever mentioned, yeah, the person who wrote the book is, is mentioned in a very negative term. 
So the average person just uh, dismisses uh, as, as some kind of lunacy. Are you labeled a conspiracy theorist and censored? I'm sure I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have been, absolutely. Well, yeah, I taught in university, but I was uh, extremely poorly treated at uh, every university I taught. Uh, actually treated in the most inhumane way. That says something. In fact, uh, and, and I had a lot of publications in fairly well-regarded academic journals, uh, like Diplomatic History is considered a flagship journal of the uh, Society of American For uh, Historian of American Foreign Relations. So for an academic career, to get a publication there is, is very prestigious and puts you on the road to a you know, 10-year good appointment. And I had publication with uh, uh, you know, uh, highly reputable university presses like University of Massachusetts Press, and yet, uh, at the university, is uh, know nothing. A provost uh, said, "Oh, you're a crank or something." And meanwhile, I, I had all these quite prestigious publications, and they were, you know, very well researched uh, articles that had uh, been subjected and passed a rigorous peer review, which can at times be uh, discriminatory in the peer review, but I passed because the research was good, and they acknowledged in some cases they may not have had the same outlook, but they were fair-minded and acknowledged that the research I had done was good. So these kind of comments, yeah, are by ignoramuses, but unfortunately those kind of people uh, are running universities now, they're running media, and uh, yeah, I'm sure I've been called that before. Uh, and, and to my face, I've been called it a couple times, and I was uh, poorly treated and, and discriminated against in, in universities. So, What keeps you going? Uh, well, I mean, I think, uh, it, uh, firstly, I think it's, you know, uh, I enjoy doing research, and I want to know the truth for myself. So uh, I'm less bothered if, if this guy's an idiot and he's not going to read it. And, and pardon my language, but that's the only term I can use. And this guy was a provost of a, ma a major university, and I, you know, I have no regard for his level of intellect. Is uh, to me is a level of a, a, maybe a twelve-year-old. So I mean, I, I want to know the truth for myself. You know, if there there are people in society who have a very narrow-minded viewpoint, I'm not going to allow that to bother me. I, I want to know, you know, what's true about these key issues we've been discussing. And I, I want to take positions for myself. Uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, be supporting uh, wars that uh, will be regarded in 10 years or 20 years as uh, a horribly unjust war. Uh, you know, I want to, you know, I have kids. I'm ha happy to say that in 2003, I did the right thing. I was a student at that time, and I uh, uh, was involved in marches against the Iraq War. Uh, and I'm happy to say I opposed a lot of other wars um, like Ukraine. So uh, at the end of the day, to me, it's most important to be on the right side of, of issues. So I want to research those topics. Um, and, you know, over time, historians usually do acknowledge uh, certain historical truths. So, you know, do you want to be uh, on the side of the slave owners or those who are involved in the genocide of the Native Americans? Uh, or do you want to be somebody who tried to speak out against 
injustices and, and atrocities that were going on or had, had the foresight to recognize that some policies were completely misguided, like in, in the COVID pandemic and, and leading toward totalitarianism, and somebody who could who could think for themselves. So I want to set that example for others, because I think our society can only flourish if people can think independently. And if we have corrupt uh, uh, elements running our society and people just become sheeps and go along with disastrous policies, that will lead to the ruin of our society. And I think that's where, where it's headed. So I think people like us who can speak, who can think for ourselves independently, uh, should continue to do that. And it's vitally important uh, for for decency to hopefully prevail in our society. So that that would be my primary motivation. Uh, yeah, and even because some of these events that we're talking about here in this history that you're researching happened decades ago, they're affecting our lives today still. Absolutely. I mean, and also I was trained as a historian. So, yeah, I mean, I have a certain training, so I want to be true to that training. I want to set the highest standard for myself as a researcher who has integrity uh, and produces good good works, whether it's uh, widely acknowledged in society or not, uh, you know, uh, is, is up to people in society. I mean, a lot of my work, I have gotten a lot of good feedback uh and uh, accolades for so that that means most to me by people who appreciate it, who read it, uh, who considered it, who are knowledgeable about history, who are thoughtful kind of people. So, uh, and yeah, I mean, as a historian, I recognize it's really important to understand and learn from history. And if certain patterns are constantly being repeated, like what I was describing, I mean, we're seeing the Phoenix blueprint now playing out in Ukraine and Russia, where they're the Phoenix, they're running assassination program where the, the the CIA is importing the technology and and, and helping in the development of of databases uh, and blacklists so they can carry out these assassinations. Uh, I mean, that's simply wrong uh, and. You know, it's wrong for society to continuously do the wrong thing. And so, I mean, if people were better aware of the history of the Vietnam War and the Phoenix program or the Indonesian massacres, I mean, very few people, you know, and I, I taught students and I still I teach courses at community college. So when we go over these history, not one student is going to say, oh, that's great. I, I support killing all those communists in Indonesia, you know, killing over a million people and, and you know, getting, going under, sending undercover agents to get information on their political affiliation so you can develop blacklists so that they can methodically kill these people. You know, I've never had one student who uh, said that was a great thing or, you know, I wish I, I was part of that. I mean, every single student... Uh, would say, well, that's a terrible uh, history, and we shouldn't do that again. So, uh, and unfortunately, we are doing it again. And unfortunately, it's probably only 1% of the population that knows anything about that history. So I think the job of historian is very important to try and educate people about some of the underside, uh, you know, especially in Western country, because we have this highfalutin attitude that we're so great and these countries in Africa are so backward, and we, you know, it's still this kind of colonial mentality, and that we're superior to everybody else, and we're this great moral force in the world. And we have to combat these authoritarian countries. Uh, uh, so, I mean, if you, if you look clear-headedly at the history of the United States or Western countries, I mean, 
they've done horrific things, and you, you start to puncture the nat- nationalistic mythology and this mythology of, of Western superiority. And I think that's important. It can have a humbling effect. If more people understood that, the society would be a little more humble and would treat people around the world with a little more respect and stop, you know, perpetuating kind of neo-colonialist policies, which continue. So I think yeah, historians uh, have a very important job. So I, I see it as an important job uh, that I'm trying to do and, and wish more people yeah, would be educating people about that history because, unfortunately, the historical profession is largely corrupted, and a lot of histor- historians may be intimidated. As I experienced since I was teaching that kind of history, I, I faced constant harassment and degradation by administrators at, at universities I was working for, even though the the, the students uh, were very open-minded uh, to learning the kind of history I was teaching. So, But I think, unfortunately, my experience uh, may not be unique in that uh, you know, a lot of uh, historians teaching in colleges or high school may feel intimidated and not uh, uh, comfortable addressing certain facets of history, uh, so, uh, and that may color people's uh, attitude uh, or, or understanding. Ultimately, you know, but I think it's important to try and teach the real history and learn from that history and evolve uh, as a society. I guess what it shows is if you've had that experience, then others probably have too. If they've veered off the official track, and if people haven't had the courage that you have to keep going then they're moulded back into the uh, official track of history so that that's all that anyone's being told. Exactly. And I think from what I see, a lot of topics just aren't covered because it's too controversial or the teacher is uncomfortable or he feels intimidated, he or she, so they just don't teach that part of history. And a lot of history courses, like I know in the United States in high school, only go up to World War II, and, like, they're only willing to address, because that, you know, was a good war. I mean, the U.S. was fighting the Nazis, so, um, you know, that war may be covered, but then when you start to get into Korea and Vietnam and more recent war, it's really a horrible history. I mean, and like, even when you go to the British, like, I went to the British uh, War Museum, and there, too, they just kind of stop. You know, it's all about the history of World War II and the glorious history. There are a few references to some more recent wars, but, like, they you know, in a museum, they often try and package it, you know, in a positive way. But, like, there's nothing really positive you could say about, like, the Iraq War or have some presentation where people would be proud of your history. <laughs> I mean, almost everybody does recognize that that was a, a naked quest for oil, and it was just, you know, uh, there's nothing positive, really. So and that, that's why I think that kind of history is never taught. The court, they just rather end the course of World War II because what are they going to tell the students, you know? And, I mean, a lot of time, like, the teacher don't want to openly lie to the student. Like, and I was, I was even telling my student, analyzing a textbook, you know, and they're asking me, should we reference it? Because I don't tend to use textbook because they... But I told them the textbook is not necessarily wrong. Most of its facts, uh, I, w- I think probably 99% of the facts are correct. It's just what they don't cover <laughs> is the problem. That's why my course, you know, I want to fill in the blanks. Uh, so, and that's why I think a lot of teachers would just choose not to cover some of the recent history because 
there's nothing good you can say about it. And they don't want to lie. And that's true about a lot of the media. Like, you can read the New York Times, and mo most, like, I read it every day, and a lot of it is true. I don't think they often lie. They just leave out <laughs> so much. And that's, you know, I once uh, read uh, John Steinbeck. He was a, a war correspondent in World War II, you know, the great writer. And he admitted to being a war propagandist, you know, and he said, well, that war was a good cause. But he said it was not that we were liars. That's exactly what he said. It was just that what we didn't, what we left out uh, was quite glaring. Like Because he wrote a book I read, it's called like Bombers in World War II, and it was just like glorifying air power. But like, you know, he left out, you know, Dresden, they bombed the city of Dresden and killed like who knows how many civilians and leveled much of the city. And he didn't discuss, uh, like he mentioned in like one line and, you know, but, but then he said, yeah, he admitted, you know, we're, we're not liars, but it was, it was the history we left out that made us propagandists. Speaking of left out, one of the operations that I had written down was Mockingbird. Yeah, Mockingbird was how the CIA cultivated journalists. And actually, this was openly uh, exposed. There was an art. See, the 70s, yeah, there was a lot of disaffection with the CIA because the Phoenix program I was describing earlier was actually publicly exposed in articles, and much of the U.S. public had turned against the Vietnam War. So they were horrified to learn about the Phoenix Project. Then you had the Church Committee hearing, which exposed, like, CIA operation to murder Fidel Castro um, and the MK Ultra. And so then there was an expose in Rolling Stone about, uh, written by uh, uh, Bernstein, who was uh, famous for the Watergate, his reporting on Watergate, uh, that exposed that like 400 prominent journalists had been in the pay of the CIA. And they included like some of the most well-known journalists, you know, of the 50s and 60s, like the Alsop brothers, Joseph and Stuart Alsop, uh, and people like that who had real uh, in influence uh, as journalists who were prominent columnists and wrote for very prominent publications. So, yeah, the CIA recruited all these top uh, journalists and they were, you know, promoting the CIA's version of history and uh, leaving out so many things. And, yeah, these kind of journalists were just writing, like, fluff pieces about the CIA and creating this romantic image of the CIA and heroic image that Hollywood later picked up on. And uh, you had a lot of Hollywood film that cultivated the same kind of image. Um, but again, it's and part of the propaganda trick is not necessarily to lie, but to leave out uh, half the story and, and you know to preserve a lot of time, you know the CIA promotes propaganda disinformation, and these journalists were basically just conduits for that. And it was part of the psychological warfare. And I think you know, in the Cold War, part of the psychological warfare was to create this fear of communism and to always demonize the communism. You couldn't have any kind of nuanced discussion uh, of communist countries and what worked and what didn't work in those countries or what was, you know. Uh, so that would be just one example. Of, of course, obviously, to always paint the American side in any conflict very heroically and demonize the uh, uh, forces the U.S. was fighting against. It's imperfect to what we were just talking about. Well, that's probably a, a good 
place to end. Again, thank you for taking the time to talk about all this history and keeping up your work of, of educating people on all those bits that the media is leaving out. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> trying my best. <laughs> it's amazing. And your website is incredible, jeremykuzmarov.com and COVID Action Magazine. I recommend everyone go and check it out. You couldn't get stuck there for quite a while. Right, yeah, please do check it out. And and if you're interested in writing for Covert Action Magazine, you can contact me. My email is jkuzmarov2 at gmail.com. We're always looking for new story ideas and new writers. And your book, uh, it should be out soon. And where can people get it? Yeah, the book is on, on Bill Clinton and his foreign policy warmonger. Um, and uh, you can find it, well, it's published by Clarity Press. And you can get it on Amazon. Uh, hopefully, it'd be easy to get in Australia. Uh, you can also email me. If you have any difficulty getting it in Australia, email me and I'll contact the publisher. Uh, and they probably have uh, ways to get it there quite easily. But uh, yeah, please, you can email me if you can't get it through Amazon at jkuzmarov2 at gmail.com. And is there anything else that you would recommend people do that they should look at? No, I think, yeah, check out our magazine. And, yeah, we've got a lot of our Covert Action magazine. Um, yeah, my website, jeremykuzmarov.com, has a listing of some of my other books and some of my writings are up there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, please do check, the, check that out. And everybody should think for themselves. <laughs> and do their own research, yeah. Absolutely. Do your own research and don't just take for granted what you're being told. Well, thank you, Jeremy Kuzmarov. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Jeremy, and, and hopefully we can do this again. Sure, yeah, absolutely. enjoyed this extended interview with Jeremy Kuzmarov on the CIA's more well-known operations, be sure to go out and get his new book, Warmonger, How Clinton's Malign Foreign Policy Launched the U.S. Trajectory from Bush to Biden. And uh, you'll uh, get a bit more of a clear picture about why there's always wars. So, uh, and also too, don't forget to check out his website, jeremykuzmarov.com and Covert Action Magazine. You can also find that on Facebook as well. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to download the Fair Food Forager app. It's also here to help you find ethical and sustainable food and food that is organic, local, supporting small businesses, reduced plastic packaging anything really to help support you and the planet and you can share good news stories learn from each other and just feel good for a change about the future and what we can do to help each other and the planet if you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to hear more please subscribe where you get your podcasts and don't forget to rate and review it especially if you're on apple podcasts and share it with your friends thanks again to ash groomwald 
This song is River from the album Now. Until next time, bye. Yeah.